Detoured Podcast. I'm Becky, and I'm sitting in my squeakiest chair. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan, and I am standing at the ready as per usual. Oh, yeah. I tried standing. It wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's for me, but now it's just where it's the setup is, so. Oh, I feel like it's not for me as, like, kind of a lifestyle choice. I might do uh, one lying down, see if I can set it up that way. Yeah, I was thinking about lying down, kind of like um, late night phone chats. Might have that. Maybe maybe that'll come across. Oh, like Slumber Party, the yeah. board, the board game Slumber Party, not what actual Slumber not, Parties were like. Yeah, you don't lie on your back and talk in a Slumber Party for real. Um, we did used to call boys on the phone and then hang up. Yeah. Did you get Did you get those calls? Uh, no, never got any of those okay. hang up calls. <laughs> sorry, nah. about, sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> Guess know. I wasn't on the Rolodex. I don't know how we chose our giggle hang up victims, but somehow yeah. we did. Um, how are you doing? Doing okay. Doing okay. Um. My new, my piece of news is that a friend of mine died. Oh my uh, god! Yeah, this this last uh, week, um, uh, he was like the guy that I like grew up. He like grew up down the street from me, and he was like my best friend for like many years, like ten years. Oh no! Um, yeah, yeah, um, and. Uh, it's he was a he was a pretty severe alcoholic, um, and we parted ways about fifteen years ago. Didn't really have a lot of contact, um, but then heard through his family that that happened. Um, oh, yeah. So I've been I've just been thinking about like because I want to like because I want to talk about it. I've also been thinking about like. You know, like, about, like, who owns their story kind of thing, mm. you know? Like, I know that he was embarrassed about it, and he was very private about it, and he, like, wouldn't want me talking about it. But right. also, I feel like, um, I feel like his condition was something that happened to me also. Uh, and so I've been, like trying to um struggle with like what you know like what is okay and what what are the ways that it's okay to grieve you mean um you think you're an alcoholic oh no no you i understand his alcoholism affected my life and so it feels like that part of it is mine to tell but also it's his condition or it was his condition and like you know if i were to like say respect his wishes on the matter it's like i would probably keep it secret and then i just feel that makes me feel strange yeah that's it's interesting with dead people too yeah um, i have a lot of dead people around yeah. right mm-hmm. and yeah it is a hard thing mine were my elders though so I feel like their stories are fair game because their stories are what fucked me up, like, straight line. Mm, mm-hmm. But that's a tough one. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, Dan. Oh, thanks. Thanks, yeah. So, it's a lot you know, to go of, through. Yeah. Um, it's one of these things that felt like it was a long time coming. Uh, yeah. You know, like, his sister was like... Uh, we, we we were never close, she and I, but um, she was like, you know, this is that call that no one wants to get, which was sort of this indicator that she's been anticipating this call for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about that, I've been thinking about my involvement, like, in his life and, like, my involvement in other people's lives and, like, when people need things from you and when you need to draw a boundary and, yeah. like... What that what that effect has that has on people and stuff and yeah that stuff's really really hard yeah um, well I guess I've been thinking about death a lot this week really um, yeah because of John Lewis mm-hmm. first yes. of all um, yeah. which is a very different thing um, so John Lewis was like 
he went over the, his coffin with him and it went over the bridge in, in Selma and he laid in state in Washington, D.C. and was eulogized. It was really interesting to me because I, I saw it as like, um, I actually haven't watched the eulogy yet and haven't watched a lot of that video. I, I saw still pictures, um, but I read his sort of posthumous piece, his op-ed for the New York Times. Mm, I haven't read that. Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing. Like, and he's, he sent it in two days before he died. I should wow. have had quotes to read. Um, but I, I had this very interesting reaction to all of this, like, his casket moving around. And I realized, like, because of – and I'm not a religiously Jewish person, but because of my experiences as a Jew, like, you just don't do that with people's bodies. Right. And – I was watching this be an extremely emotional, important moment for friends and was like, why can't I watch this? And I realized like that, that like if you, if for anyone listening who doesn't know in Jewish culture, you get people on the ground as fast as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess somewhere deep inside me, it's like a weird um, dissonance in my brain that it feels disrespectful to do that, even though I absolutely mm-hmm. know that that's not what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but his um, letter is amazing. And to be able to plan for your death in that way. Oh, so he had planned. Well, he was ill. But I mean, he he sent it to be published posthumously. I see. Like, there's so many different kinds of death. Um, and some of them, although really painful, feel correct. That's how I felt when my grandfather passed away or my grandmother. My grandmother was 102. You're like, you know. And then other ones really don't feel that way. Right. Yeah. Oh, this is, yeah. a, this is a tough one. I'm sorry that you're going through this, buddy. Are you going to go to Ottawa? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. He he was out in Victoria. And oh. so... Um, oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know if there's going to be any kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm waiting to be updated on on uh, the services of any kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I only the only thing about John Lewis I saw was uh, Bill Clinton's terrible... Like, <laughs> the terrible job he did. Did you hear about that? No, I haven't followed. I have to. It was on my list of things to do today. Oh, well, he was, like, comparing him to Stokely Carmichael in this way that was, like, pitting them against each other. And he was like, you know, for a few right, for a few years there, Stokely was winning the, winning the public favor, but then John Lewis prevailed. It's like, ugh, gross. Oh, gosh. Sit down. Yeah. Yeah, it's real. Tone deaf. Oh, no. Sit down. Um, well, what else is there to say? you have any hopefuls? Uh, do have any hopefuls? Um, nothing specific. Uh, you know, stage three day. Oh, yeah, man. Sports is coming yeah. back. Um, stage three is happening. Um, eviction. What's the term I'm looking for? Moratorium? Moratorium. There we go. The eviction moratorium lifts tomorrow in Ontario. It's lifting in the States, too. It's pretty fucking grim. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, there was, there's, there's been the obvious school debate is raging, and uh, there was a headline today about a camp in Georgia where hundreds of kids were spreading the virus. Um, there's, there's talk in Toronto of um, live performance venues opening up again, which seems terrifying and unnecessary to me um i haven't heard of that i mean i've heard of movie theaters opening this has been chatter sorry this has been conversational chatter in the community that i've heard so i don't have anything specific to report but it feels like a very to me ungood idea given that (laughs) outdoor shows are also happening and that seems nice um right yeah while we can while we can yeah exactly and um people are doing comedy shows quite safely outdoors Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, something. I have something to plug. Oh wow! The plug. <laughs> the the the. What's another p word we can use to call this a segment? Um, there aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> the pl- the plug portion. Yeah, the plug portion. That's yeah, a great name. It just rolls off the plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I oh, I have another one to plug in a bit. But the like not today. <laughs> I um, I'm in a short film that's going to actually have a world premiere with wow. other people. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, it's totally exciting. Oh, now I have to look up the name of the festival. 
There's it's an outdoor screening. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Look this up. Toronto outdoor. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to fill the space while you. <laughs> I just told you to shut up. <laughs> I'm so wait, sorry. wait, wait, wait in silence while I do this. This has been a really uh, lovely thing to do to you over the course of this episode. Hey. <laughs> okay, the Toronto Outdoor Picture Show. The Toronto Outdoor Picture Show. The Toronto Outdoor Picture Show. Uh, I'm gonna. Sh- I'm imagining a steampunk esque graphic design when I hear that title. Um, it's sort of like Chris Ware meets steampunk. Maybe is the design okay. aesthetic. Um, okay. It's uh, it's a short film called Tips Are Appreciated that is directed by my friend and yours, Dan Trevor Anderson. Ah, Trevor Anderson himself. Yeah, we shot it literally the day before lockdown. <laughs> I remember hearing about that. Yeah. yeah, and somehow the arc of time, and it was always actually commissioned by an outdoor movie festival. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's the Toronto Outdoor Picture Show's 10th anniversary, so they commissioned short films to accompany the movies they were screening. Cool. Now, I can't remember how many they commissioned, but only two were completed. <laughs> Um, ours and the one that I'm in is um, I'm in it with the wonderful Lee Cameron and the wonderful Chris Sandiford oh excellent and then the other one that was completed is the Templeton Philharmonics Um, oh cool Gwen Phillips and Brianna Templeton also completed a short film and that was it (laughs) is that called Women's Hour? yes it is okay well I have something to plug for the plug portion oh okay for plug portion yeah yeah I have a film screening at the Toronto Outdoor Film (laughs) festival screening uh i am in a short that one of two that was completed as part of the uh, pre-screening program for the 10th anniversary of the festival uh it is a film called women's hour oh. that i appear in congratulations yeah. thank you very much oh that's so, that's so fantastic we both are in short films um you can and everyone can get oh, are we both in them well you said you were in that <laughs> Okay. Yes, oh, we are God. both of them, yeah. It's too hot. Did <laughs> we forget to do the weather report? It's too hot. Oh, well, that's why. It's too hot. I'm sweating. Um, okay, but also there's free tickets. Did you know about that? No, please tell me. Um, yeah, so this episode will come out August 3rd. Okay. <laughs> hopefully at 6 a.m. If you download this right away, you have till noon. <laughs> <laughs> At noon, <laughs> you could go on the Toronto Outdoor Picture Show website, and for each yeah. of these screenings, they are releasing a hundred free tickets. Nice, but it, well, the, sorry, but it what? It needs to be ticketed for like capacity and safety reasons. I see. Well, the cool thing about um, the analytics that we get for the podcast is that we can see that everyone, like pretty much everyone, 90% of the people who listen to the podcast get the notification at 6 a.m., wake up and listen to the episode in its entirety. So Yeah, it's like, you know, pretty you good. brush your teeth, take your shower, um, yeah. go poo, go poo. Greet the, greet the sun. <laughs> greet the sun, excrete some yeah. things. Um, yeah. yeah, so these are- Excrete some, <laughs> okay, sorry, Whatever. I'm done. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's at Fort York, too. Historic Fort, Fort York. York. Ah, yeah. yes. Where the battalions once were stationed. Yeah, colonial fort. Anyway, uh. <laughs> just what we need right now. <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, um, yeah, you can see movies in Toronto. If you don't live in Toronto, especially if you live in the United States, I'm very sorry that you have to hear about this. <laughs> we spend a long time on it. Yeah, well, because it's... There's not there's not a lot of news in that regard. There's not a lot of news for us. Uh, oh, I see. In, <laughs> there's a in lot terms of news of the plug in the world. For there's plug- not a lot of news going on. Yeah, I haven't heard anything. <laughs> um, I do you want to know about my interview? Yes, please. I did an interview with somebody that I met during quarantine. Whoa. Desiree Walsh is a comedian. Okay. And um, I saw her on a Zoom show and then sent her a message and then we met and she's just wonderful. Cool. Um, and it's an illuminating interview about all sorts of things, about comedy going online, about disability, about um, existentialism and the death of God. Just it goes all over the place. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay well, cool. I'll see you at Fort Let's York. Let's check it out. All right. <laughs> see you there. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. It's Becky. I'm back, and I'm really happy to be joined from across the city by comedian Desiree Walsh. Hello, Desiree. Hello. How are you? 
I'm good, thank you. <laughs> um, you are one of the few people that I've, I guess, quote unquote, met during quarantine. <laughs> oh yeah, because you watched um, Ophira Kalev's Slumber Party. Yeah, I watched the show, and I actually watched it like the day after it aired. Yeah. Um, Desiree's a comedian, and at a certain point, you know, I'm sure it's, well, you can tell me, how is it to perform in front of a computer screen now? Um, it's really strange. Um, for that particular one, the show is on YouTube, so it was awkward because there was literally no human interaction, and kind of as a comedian, you say a joke and then you wait like a couple seconds for the eruptus laughter. Um, yeah. Because you are hilarious. And like <laughs> in that particular setting, there was none. So it was literally like I was just talking to myself. And like <laughs> if it's quiet as a comedian, that's when you start to panic. <laughs> it yeah. It's a bit awkward because I was like, oh no, I'm bombing. But then there was nobody there. Um, but Zoom. There's been a lot of Zoom um, open mics over the computer, and those aren't too, too bad in that, like, sometimes people don't mute their mics, so you can still hear, like, their funny laughters. Like, you have the other comics there to Yeah, yeah. Or, like, sometimes people log in and watch um, on the shows. Oh, the audience can be, like, in the audience. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm doing a show on Friday called Women through a glass ceiling, I believe, or women behind glass or something. And they, they're they selling tickets so people can log on and watch. Oh, right. And I right. think that is pretty cool. Yeah, so they found a way to actually sell tickets instead of just broadcast it publicly. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Oh, I was going to ask you. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so the way that we met was that a day later, I, I messaged saying, I saw your set and I was laughing because... <laughs> I didn't know how to give the comedians their feedback otherwise. <laughs> so a day later, you get a message from a stranger being like, that was funny. I appreciated that because I was like, this sounds so bad. I think there was a moment in the set where you said something like, like, I don't know what's going on or like, I feel weird right now or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, well, I have to message her because if we were in the room, she'd be hearing me laugh. Um, so... Let me, um, I usually start the episode by asking my guests to introduce themselves. So how, who are you? How do you define yourself in this world? Um, so I, I define myself as a um, disabled woman. I use a wheelchair. So, so that is, that is how I identify is I am a disabled woman. I'm also Caucasian, if your viewers care. I don't think okay. they do, but maybe so, they do. Who knows? Um, yeah, and then that's that's kind of how I would identify myself if you were saying kind of who are you. Mm -hmm. And I'm a comedian, and I also work in a bank during the day. And are you still working? I am. We're lucky enough to be able to work from home, so it's, it's quite nice um, in that I still have a job in a time where yeah. there's lots of people that don't have consistent money. Um, so I feel quite fortunate. Um, and what, so what general changes, we've talked a little bit about it already, but what changes have you felt in comedy for yourself during the pandemic? Um, mostly, like, again, it's largely on the computer now. And before it was a lot of getting dressed, leaving your home, going to like a pretty um, seedy bar. Yeah. Actually, I think that's a requirement of all comedy shows is they have to either be in the darkest basement ever or they have to be in a bar that you're like, I don't really think it's safe to enter. Um, <laughs> right. That's how you know there is probably a comedy show. Yeah. But yeah, but it's been kind of neat to do compute um, mics over Zoom because it's actually like there's a Facebook group called Displaced Comedian. Um, that I believe an American comic started. So it's a lot of American comics and like people from different countries. So I've gotten to like actually meet a lot of different comics from like the US and other countries. And then also like something that's really 
sort of unique. And I've been told by a few American comics that this is a Zoom phenomenon is uh-huh. when you normally go to open mics or comedy shows, it's a lot of like white guys with hats in Toronto. Like it's, <laughs> it's predominantly a, like still predominantly a male driven industry. And there's, there's still very few, um, like different types of minorities, including women Yep. there. But on, with the Zoom mics, and I don't know, again, if this is just a Zoom phenomenon, but, like, I have been in shows with, like, cis white males and, and like, queer people and, like, women of color and, and like, men of color and black women and black men and, and other disabled people, which is, like, virtually unheard of. Oh, yeah. And, and we all... Like, are just there, and it's, like, I don't feel like anybody's really trying to offend or upset anybody, and, like, I I used to feel in the before times of in-person mics that there's quite a few comedians that just kind of want to, like, upset people, and hear that in Zoom, in the Zoom world, it doesn't seem to be happening, and that is, like, it's, it's something really nice. Do you have any thoughts about why that would be? Um... I don't really know. One of the American comedians I was speaking to about this phenomenon, because I literally start every Zoom show with, wow, there are other women here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. He said that a lot of the Zoom shows are recorded, so people probably don't want to be have recordings of themselves saying things that their mothers couldn't hear. That's amazing. Um, But I don't know. But maybe. And then another woman said that she thinks it's only a certain type of comedian that would want to do a Zoom show. So maybe some of the more, like, hateful-filled people or edgelords are are not accessing digital mics. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... But it's it's been really nice. Yeah. I mean, I am... we don't know each other well. So my background in comedy is in improv. So I, I'm still a bit of a, I, I sort of look upon the stand up world from the outside. Um, but yeah, my first instinct would be it's public and there's transparency. Yeah. And that's what the American comic that I was talking to did say is like, it's, it's very public. There's transparency. Like there's less of a chance that somebody's going to hold up a phone at an open mic and record you. And then put it on the internet. But like with Zoom stuff, you never know. Or the feeling of being seen is just present. Yeah, I I think that's the other thing is, and I mean, it's odd to say like, on a computer, people are more seen. But it really is true because it's on Zoom, like you actually kind of have to pay attention. And a lot of mics um, request that you leave your camera on. So, like, the comedians can see you, and I'm guilty of this, too. The comedians can see you not paying attention. Oh, my gosh. Whereas if you're in, like, a dank bar, like, as a comedian, if you were, like, I'll give you $100 in the dank bar, if you can tell me, like, how many people are on their phones, I would be like, oh, I have no idea. Yeah. But also, there is that whole thing in the back of the room. Like, I've been to enough stand-up shows that in the back of the room, you do see everyone on their phones, like the comedians. Yeah, it's what you do as a comedian while you're waiting for your turn as you sit on your phone and and do, like, whatever it is you need to do, or you write in your notebook, or... And then every once in a while, like, if your friend goes up, you'll pay attention, or, like, if somebody is really funny... You will then pay attention to. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like the phone is so different. This is just me musing now, but the phone is so yeah. different than the the notebook because the phone you can always be like, yeah, yeah, I'm working on my set, but maybe you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The notebook doesn't really offer like scrolling on Instagram, right? Yeah, that's true. Or Facebook, or like texting your friend. You you. I mean, I guess you could try to text your friend with your notebook, but I don't think you'd be successful. <laughs> yeah, writing love letters and passing them around or something. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely <laughs> distracting in the back of the room. Just like, I wrote you this note. 
do you like me? Check yes, check no. Yes. <laughs> Did you like my set? Check yes, check yeah. no. Yeah. Well, which which one do you think is better? Um, I I think they both have good qualities. Yeah. Um, one of the things with Zoom that's kind of been another phenomenon of the pandemic and comedy is Zoom shows are wheelchair accessible and in Toronto currently the physical space of the comedy scene is not very wheelchair accessible so there's a lot of places and shows I can't actually be on because I can't get in the building or like I can get in the building but I will need a lot of assistance right so zoom has really kind of broken down those physical barriers yeah it seems quite obvious in fact yeah like it really in a lot of ways lays bare the barriers to entry and you know some of them there's spaces yeah. that it was the space they could find and afford you know but yeah it's it's kind of glaring but usually it is like this is this is a space we could find and afford yeah, but it's up like a giant flight of stairs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so have you been meeting comics from all over the world then? Um, mostly the U.S. Cool. What have been your favorite shows to do? Uh, on Zoom or like in the before times when we, we went to brick and mortar spaces? <laughs> um, actually, maybe both. Answer both questions. Both. Um... So on Zoom, there's an open mic in Philadelphia that I really like. Um, and then there's a couple open mics that are based out of L.A. that I really like. Um, they don't really have names. Oh. Well, they, they do, but I can't remember them. Oh, okay. Um, and then for physical space shows, anything... Um, at the underground, like, social club was good. Um, she's had to switch locations due to um, the pen pandemic, but I really liked the underground. That was fun to do comedy at. Um, unfortunately, the 120 Diner closed, again, due to, like, COVID times. But that was a really nice spot to do stand-up comedy. They had a Friday night show, Comedy Kapow, that I really liked. Hmm. Um, there was a show at All Be Seeing You on Tuesday nights that I also quite enjoyed doing. All these places, um, the Underground and All Be Seeing You, are wheelchair accessible, so, so that's mostly why I like them. Like The people were very nice, too, but anywhere I can pee is great. And then the yeah. 120 diner was accessible, but not the bathroom. But I lived close enough that it didn't really matter. And it was still, it was still like a nice spot. I've seen you on Facebook talking about peeing between sets. Yeah, that's, that's been a new thing I do um, with Zoom is because I'm in my home. Like, I don't have to hold it because my, my, I live in a wheelchair accessible apartment. Able-bodied able people always find that fascinating. I don't really understand why. But What do you mean? Able-bodied people find it fascinating that you live in a wheelchair-accessible apartment? Yeah, I, I, I don't really understand. Like, what were you what were you expecting? A three-floor walk-up? What? <laughs> I'm sorry. It, I'm so shocked that yeah, people are surprised by that. Yeah, like, really surprised. I Like, the only thing I can think of is, I guess, because maybe, like, their homes are not wheelchair accessible and, like, their friends' homes are not. Like, it's not very common for somebody just to live in a wheelchair accessible home when they're not, in fact, using a wheelchair. Um, yeah. So, sorry, what kind of reactions do you get from people? Uh, uh, just about... Your apartment. Um, oh, usually the question is... Like, is your apartment wheelchair accessible? <laughs> and the answer is yes. And people are okay. always like, really? That's cool. <laughs> okay. And, and I, I just always find it like, like, honestly, what did you think? <laughs> like, three floor walk up. 
Or maybe that like as soon as they, you went out of their field of vision that you just sort of fell asleep wherever you were. <laughs> like, yes, yes. I, I, I'm a gargoyle. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, the central question of this podcast is about hope. I don't really know what it means in 2020. I don't, I didn't know what it meant to begin with. And that's why I started asking people, um, how do you relate to the notion of hope? Um, I, I listened to one of your podcasts before I did it. And the man you spoke to had such an eloquent answer (laughs) (laughs) that like involved like, citing and quoting like different um philosophies that, okay. that I'm not I'm not sure my answer of the notion of hope um, okay. will be near nearly as eloquent. Um but I have been thinking about it most of the day and as I let you know I did <laughs> eat a lot of food and drink a lot of coffee so I don't announce on your podcast that God is dead. Yeah, I, I, first of all, you're allowed to announce that God is dead. Also, eloquence is not required here. Okay. <laughs> I hope my presence proves that. And, um, it's funny, you know, with podcasts, um, sometimes when you, when you were asked to go on a podcast, they give you links. And if you didn't, you don't listen to the podcast, then it's like you're unprepared. I've actually found it's fine for people to not listen to it because, yeah, the answer from the week before can be totally not apply to you. And, can just seem like what's required. There is no specific requirement. <laughs> just your honest answer. Do you think God's dead? Wow. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure if God is alive or dead. I mean, 2020 would probably indicate that if there is a God, he is either dead or asleep at the wheel. But, but I don't yeah. know. Or his plan is like super complicated and yeah. hurtful. Um, yeah, I read a very depressing article this morning that I've been having a lot of struggles with anxiety because of the the weight of the news. And I read a, I don't need to tell you what it's about. I guess I can. Do you want to hear? Okay. Um, it's about just the spread of COVID through the Amazon, um, along, along the river. And it, it it actually gave me a God is dead feeling of like, Oh, why would the people on the Amazon River who have been through so much have to go through this? You know? Yeah. Sorry, that's not very funny. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I think of when I think about what God's up to right now. <laughs> and there was a quote in the article that said from one of the, the people who had lost a family member that she said that they, they just couldn't accept that it was COVID because why would God kill them in such an ugly way? Oh, I know. Okay, sorry. I brought it down. What What was your answer <laughs> about um about hope? Because you said hope. you had an answer. Oh, you didn't the, think it was the notion of hope. Um, I spent yeah. a lot of time thinking about it this afternoon, and the last time I really was full of hope. Um, so the two answers I've came up with are: I think hope is like a very privileged feeling. Mm. Um, and that the last time I really like, I mean, I think as adults, like we're not really, um, it's not that we're not allowed to have hope, but if you open, if you publicly like declare kind of hopefulness or like positivity, you're either met with shut up Karen or like, you're stupid, like, you're somehow seen as, like, unrealistic, whereas when you're a child, like, people just seem to accept that, like, anything you say, if you have a goal, like, it it seems to be okay, and, like, I don't think, I don't know. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, yeah like, in kids, we want them to be hopeful, but in adults, it's, like, gross. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, because the last, um, I also identify as dead inside, so, okay. so God okay. is dead, I am dead inside. Um, okay, all right. Um, yeah, so so it's great, it's great here. Um, <laughs> well, you work at a bank, so. And I work in a bank, 
Yeah, but the last, like, I remember as a child, like, just feeling like I could do anything, like, even though I, I actually can't walk and sometimes things are hard, like, just, like, really just never, like, even when people were like, like, you can't do that, I would be like, no, like, I, I can, and um, just, like, I, I had all these goals like, I used to be a competitive swimmer, and I really wanted to go to the Paralympics, and, and I did, like, I swam for 10 years, and I just, like, I, I wasn't very good, but I just really wanted to go to the, like, Paralympics, and I just believed so much that I could, and I don't, and, like, even, like, as a child, people would tell me things like, like, you'll never live on your own or, like, you won't be able to get a job because you can't walk. And I would just be like, no, no, like, like, I'll be able to do those things. And, like, I can, but, like, part of the reason why I was able to do all those things is because I just believed I could. And, like, I don't, I don't think we really allow, like, adults the same type of whimsy I guess yeah is it whimsy? I, I don't know. Uh, no uh, this is really great like yeah so I guess what I'm the question is like is that is it good to take away hope or is it just flat out bad in that and, context and like that's something I struggle with I mean, I, I don't know if this is too far outside of everything you're talking about, but... I, I don't think anything will be. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I have a master's in inclusive design, and my twin sister actually has a master's in disability studies, and um, kind of both of those disciplines talk a lot about, like, it's not that you should be better, it's that the story is actually, like... I wish Toronto was more reflexive to, like, different types of bodies to make the subway, like, to make college subway wheelchair accessible. And, like, um, disability studies and the sociology as well talk a lot about, like, systemic discrimination. And, like, when I learned about systemic discrimination in terms of disability, like, it was really, really powerful because then you kind of learn that, like, it's like it's not all your fault that it's this hard and like it it's not it might not actually be that you're not trying it's that like you have some significant barriers to overcome and as an adult i found that notion really powerful but i've debated this a little bit with my sister but i don't know if like how useful it is at like 12 to tell somebody who's younger like 12 or 11 that like systemic discrimination is real and like there's going to be times in your life where you try so hard and like it, it'll just be like insurmount like insurmountable and you can't like there's nothing you can do about it and like even though I found that so powerful as a young adult like I'm I think maybe when I was younger I would have been like okay then I'm I'm just sitting down like we're not going to try. Right. Right. But the other thing that, yeah, but the other side of that you said was like, you know, the feeling that it wasn't just that you weren't trying hard enough. Yeah. Which seems very powerful because of course it's not like there's buildings that you're not allowed to go into for no good reason. It's, it's true. I mean, among whatever other things that I don't perceive that are barriers, right? That's just an obvious yeah. one to me. But then does does knowing that create a space for activism? Like knowing that the system is incorrect? Yeah, it does. And I, I think maybe you could um, position it like if you were going to talk to a youth like that. Because one of the things like in my 20s and like even now, like one of the things is like now that I know this, like how how can we make change or like what do we what do we make change about and the other thing is I think it's important to know about like systemic discrimination because if it's just a you problem then the TTC doesn't have 
a responsibility to fix it. But if it's like you've created this systemic barrier stopping like a pretty significant marginalized group of people from accessing your services or like getting jobs, um, like that that's on you, not like not on me. Yeah, that's on the transit company. Yeah, I use that as an example, but like even. Yeah. Uh. Oh yeah, I'd I'd love to know more about um, just because of my ignorance to know more about systemic discrimination and like I don't know if there are instances that you feel like sharing with the listeners who might not know. Um, sure. I only know really from the perspective of a disabled person, and also like, um. As I said at the top of the podcast, I'm also a white person, so I do recognize that, like, I have privilege in terms of race, and actually, in terms of my disability, like, it's not what I would um, consider mild. Like, I do use a manual wheelchair, but I do have the ability to, like, bear weight, and I can walk with crutches, and, like, I can use my hands, Mm. Um, fairly well. So like I do have a little bit of body privilege as well. Um, yep. But in terms of, um, I guess, disability and systemic discrimination, like it's still, it's really hard to find like a, a decent job. And um, it actually took me 10 years to get into the bank. And then I've worked there for four years and it's kind of the first job I've ever had that's, like, full-time permanent with benefits. And I know that's, like, a little bit of a unicorn in this day and age. But yeah, um, compared to, like, my able-bodied counterparts, like, when you're able-bodied, you have the ability to go do a lot of, like, service jobs. And, like, whereas I couldn't, so it was harder for me. And then also... I know a lot more able-bodied people that were able to get into professional jobs like quite easily after university. Right. And then if they couldn't, like they were able to be like held over by doing like service jobs. And I didn't really have like that luxury. Right. Yeah. And I, I like that, that would be in terms of systemic discrimination and getting a job, like that's more society's attitudes. Like I have gone to a lot of interviews that were over before they even started just cause like people can't imagine how a person in a wheelchair would like do this job. Right. Or there's yeah. jobs that you're totally capable of doing, but the space in which the job happens won't allow you to. Yeah. Or like I need um, some sort of accommodation that, oh, excuse me, um, I just burped on your podcast. Good. <laughs> it, it's all the food I've been, I've pretty much been eating nonstop <laughs> since I woke up to make your sure. Your existentialist diet to keep yeah, your, like, yeah. nihilism at bay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, to make, make sure my blood sugar doesn't drop and I'm just like, God is dead, like... So is the is the sort of uh, God is dead stuff attached to blood sugar for you? <laughs> um, yeah, it seems to be. Like, I used to write, my friend worked at a summer camp when we were younger, and I used to write her letters, mm-hmm. and sometimes they'd be real, and I used to competitive swim, um, so I used to sometimes write them after practice when I'd be really tired, my blood sugar would be low, and they'd just be, like, so negative. <laughs> and then I'd go eat lunch and, like, I'd finish the rest of the letter and it would just be like, oh, like, I hope you're having a good day and I saw a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, like, just the stark contrast <laughs> would sometimes be really alarming. Yeah. I got a letter once from my husband that was or a, a postcard that was clearly drunk. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of my most prized possessions. It's like Homer Simpson wrote something to Marge like that. Where he's like, <laughs> Wish you were he- her. <laughs> oh, is that what he said? Yeah, it was like a postcard of like a pretty lady. And it said, wish you were he- her. And then I think on the back it had like drunk scrawlings. Like you got a butt that just won't quit? 
Yeah. <laughs> I think that I, was in oh, there. yeah. I, I think that was it because they pulled it out <laughs> from the episode where Bart was writing love letters to his teacher and was using, like, Gordy Howe's rookie card as the right. picture. <laughs> anyway, my husband sent me a postcard from Mexico that began with, I love tequila. <laughs> like... <laughs> The messiest scroll. And he's got quite good handwriting. He's an illustrator. He works, he draws all day. So, like, he hasn't atrophied his ability to write. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, it was quite good. Um, Where were we? I've totally lost track. We were talking about systemic discrimination and disability. Should we go back to that? Um, Sure. Basically, just what I was saying is, like, like, so get it in terms of getting jobs, like you really need somebody to buy in that, like, as a disabled person, you could actually do this job. And I think probably largely because there's not a lot of representation of disabled people in the media, like right. do- doing good work. Um, it's hard for people, unless you know somebody personally, to like imagine that you could do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very upsetting. <laughs> it, it is. Um, but but in terms of hope, like that, it's kind of one of the things that I wonder. Like, had I known that when I was little, if I'd still be like as successful as I am? Because I think what largely like carried me through is like. I, I really did believe, like, this is possible. And then, like, as an adult, it became more of, like, I didn't ever question if it was possible, but it was more like, this better work out because I got to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you also said something about hope being a privileged thing. Yeah. So um, I think hope is a bit of a privilege. And even as a child, like, um. I think it was a bit of a privilege because, like, I grew up, like, in a middle-class family. Like, my parents, um, like, my parents are fairly supportive in terms of, like, they wanted me to have lots of opportunities. So, like, even the very fact that I got to play, um adapted sports and got to like learn about the Paralympics and stuff is a bit of a privilege because um sports in general are quite costly and then even like sometimes like adapted sports can be costly as well like swimming swimming does not really have an extra like added cost but like wheelchair basketball my sister played wheelchair basketball actually we both did but I quit after four years um right I played left bench for most of my basketball career. Um, I wasn't that good. Yeah, it was mostly left bench and then sometimes right bench. Yeah. Um, but right. a, a basketball wheelchair is like $10,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So if you really, like, want to get serious, you really do. Like, you can play wheelchair basketball in an everyday chair. But if you really want to get serious and also, like, the sport of wheelchair basketball is pretty rough, so right. it's it's best not to play wheelchair basketball in your day chair because you need that to go to school and work. But the fact, like, the, the chair is $10,000, and even, like, a wheelchair racing chair is also, I think, $10,000. Pretty much everything is $10,000. And <laughs> right. if, like, your parent, I mean, my parents never bought my sister a basketball chair. I I think she got one like donated from the club. Mm-hmm. Um, but like if your parents don't have the money to buy sports equipment like that, or like you're not close to to like an adapted sports club, like it's gonna be pretty hard to play like sports as a disabled kid. So the fact that I even got to do that like makes me feel like I was pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had the opportunity, before I worked for the bank, I worked for the Toronto District School Board, and, yep. like, one of the things, I was an on-call admin assistant, which is a fancy term for I replace secretaries, 
And right. one of the things I got to see on like sort of a ma- uh, very small scale is I got to meet like children that didn't have hope that were just like, like it was like somebody took me now at like 36 and crammed me into like, like a six year old. And like, there's just, there's just something so sad about like seeing someone who is under the age of like 20 who doesn't believe they can do everything and like doesn't believe like that the world is their oyster yeah. and like doesn't even have the luxury to like be silly and put bags on their heads because like their parents like either that they have a bad home situation or um like of low income so really like after seeing that and then like thinking about how I grew up I feel like hope is a real privilege because if you don't have all your physical needs met and like support, like you d- you don't really have time to be like whimsical and like fun. Yeah, but it is something that we could give to everybody in this country anyway. Yeah, yeah, like I I am a big advocate of like programs that feed children um, like, I think we really need to look at, um, like, making sure people's, I mean, and I don't have any, like, grandiose solutions for these things, but I really think in society, we put a lot of onus on the individual, and, like, if you're poor, it's your fault, and if your yeah. kids are hungry, it's your, you're a bad mom, and, like, really, that's, that's not the case. And I, I think we need to work harder as a society to make people's basic needs met. Because um, often, I mean, this is not really the same, but I had lunch with a colleague of mine once and we were eating lunch and he said he was disabled too. And we were talking about working and like how hard it was to get a job and how expensive wheelchairs are and like yep. how hard the, it, like, how benefits are good, but, like, sometimes the insurance company won't cover, like, certain things you need as a disabled person and how, like, that was garbage. And then he said, I wish, like, more disabled people thought like us and, like, were motivated enough to work. And I just said, oh, like, I don't I don't think the issue is that disabled people haven't thought about working and aren't yeah. motivated enough to work. Like, Systemic discrimination is real and like there are pretty significant barriers to working. And he just looked at me like I I had like a, a bird on my head. Huh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, you know Courtney Gilmore. Yes. Yeah, so Courtney um really used her platform to talk about the artificial leg that she needed yeah, to get. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I was just shocked to find out that it wasn't covered. Me too, actually. Cause, um, and it was like, what was it, like $250,000 or something? Something like that. Like something like pretty substantial. But Courtney um, like made a point of, uh, she's a comedian. She made a point of like going on uh, TV shows, performing live a lot to talk about this for her own. She had a campaign to fund her leg because yeah. her old leg had snapped in the subway, which was a terrifying story. Yeah, yes, I, be- I I did hear about that. Yeah, but like, yeah, finding out there's a quarter million dollars that the government won't pay for so that she can have a leg to walk on, literally a leg to walk on. Yeah, that that was really interesting for myself because actually um, the government, I mean, it's changed a little bit now with Doug Ford and stuff. But before, like, the government does offer funding for, like, wheelchairs and different mobility devices. So I just thought, like, um, a prosthetic leg would probably go under that. Because why wouldn't it? Maybe it was because she wanted a good one that worked? No, no, no. no. It was, it, (gasps) it, she told me there was no, like, there's no fun, there's no government funding for any prosthetic. So, like, I think it doesn't matter what kind of prosthetic you get you don't get funding from the government that's and and that's why like war amps is still such a big presence right um which whereas like with wheelchairs um the ontario government 
if you can get like an occupational therapist to assess you and say like you actually like legit need a wheelchair um they will cover about 75 percent of the cost of the wheelchair um which is good because wheelchairs usually run like like my wheelchair is a seven thousand dollars so that's that's pretty expensive and then electric wheelchairs are even more sometimes so like 70 that or 75 percent of that is still a pretty good chunk of change yeah but it should be all of it (laughs) yes yes i guess it should (laughs) sorry (laughs) um but like at least they do that yeah but i don't like prosthetic legs are just as important as wheelchairs so i don't understand why they wouldn't fund a prosthetic leg as well it's it's like were you one of the people who reposted this of like trying to explain our healthcare system to americans where it's like yeah but something's wrong with your eye your tooth or your mental state that doesn't count yeah yeah actually that that's been discussing healthcare has been really interesting with other like american comics right and even though like we're missing a lot like they don't have anything really yeah but still like even even with the stuff we cover like i'm very thankful for that but we we really should be covering people's dental and and eyes because dental and eyes are important and even like mental health like i think mental health is also very important yeah it all the eyes and teeth given how close they are to your brain and if you get an infection that you just die well and also, um, my friend is a dental hygienist, and she said, like, there's lots of health conditions that are related to your teeth. That, yeah, like, totally. If, if you can see a dentist, they can identify them before, like, things get really bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's this, and it's this, like, kind of Canadian complacency of, like, thinking that we're okay or looking down our noses at America or the United States, sorry, yeah. when when it's just a re- it's just, it seems like an excuse to not pay attention to all the problems that we have here. Yeah, I guess it's kind of, like, one of those, like, like why are you complaining if you have something? Mm-hmm. You should be grateful that you get anything. Yeah. Gratitude is a pretty weaponized thing, I've noticed. Like, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that along with, like, the idea of, like, um, it's an individual's problem mm-hmm. is, like, also weaponized. Again, because if we make it an individual problem, then society doesn't have to change. Right. Yeah. Um, when you were at OCAD... What were what were some like takeaways from that education that you, I mean I'm just interested in it. <laughs> um. So when I I when I did my master's, kind of some of the takeaways from it is we discussed a lot like about like what it means to like when things are inaccessible or like designed in a certain way. Like what is this saying and like who is this this who is this person who designed it expecting in this space? And oftentimes, like, that's kind of how I take up, like, wheelchair accessibility is, like, by this not being accessible, you are saying I am not welcome. Mm. And and people often don't like that because when I've brought it to people's attention that, like, when it is unaccessible, you are saying I am not welcome, I get quite often, no, no, everyone is welcome. Well, is it accessible? No, but I said everyone is welcome, so I'm not an asshole. Yeah, uh, I mean, we're hearing a lot of arguments like that on a lot of different fronts right yeah. now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, what is the message that this is sending to society? Well, or even like the individual. <laughs> hmm Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we fix it? Um, I, I don't really know. Um, mm-hmm. I think we are moving in the right direction. I actually think the pandemic is going to do some really interesting things to accessibility and how we treat the disabled. Oh, in terms of Well, in terms of, like, lots of people are working from home now, and previous to the pandemic, like, 
There was an understanding that only certain types of jobs could work from home. Right. And now, now pretty much like everyone does. And that is a huge accommodation for disabled people that would be good is like working from home um, and having flex time. And I just like, I think it's going to, the pandemic and the fact that we've had to adjust basically the economy is going to change how people view accommodation or that a lot of accommodations are now just going to become mainstream because of safety. Like I work from home now. Everyone at Rogers customer service works from home. All the UPS people in the customer service work from home now. Um, like, like most of like pretty much it feels like only service jobs are not working from home. That might be that night might not be fair. Um, but there are there are a lot of people working from home. Yeah, like it's jobs that require the movement of physical objects from yeah. one space to another. Yeah, but people aren't going in to have meetings. Just yeah. talk to each other. Yeah, like you're phoning people now. Yeah. And having Zoom meetings all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Desiree, we're running out of time. Oh, okay. This has been fantastic. Okay. Sorry, Thank we you. didn't talk too much about hope. Yeah, we did. Okay. Do you want do you have anything else you want to say about it? Um no, but I I do think from what we were talking about before, like I think the notion of gratitude um is weaponized and then also I think the notion that like you can achieve anything. Yeah. This aligns with hope is um also kind of weaponized because if you again make it an individual problem, then society doesn't really have to change. Yeah. Yeah, and and they both to me anyway, I'd like to hear your thoughts, but they both seem double-edged because you know at night I find it very calming to think about things that I'm grateful for in my life. Yes. And I try to make a practice of that, but it's it's giving gratefulness to people who are, for instance, like giving me a job but treating me poorly. <laughs> yeah. Like, having to say that you're so grateful to have anything when, you know, or like 75% of a wheelchair being paid for. Yeah, and that's considered really good. Yeah. Like, I think among the – I would have to look, but I think among the provinces like that – I think we are probably the highest funded for mobility devices. Yeah. But the, so gratitude has these two sides and so does telling people that they can be anything, but. Yeah. I just, I've heard a lot of um, things about disability specifically, because that's really all I know yeah. is like, it's often positioned as like you, you were determined enough to break down these barriers and like, live your dreams and go to the Paralympics and like you're not lazy you have a job and like you don't need any help like you you do it for yourself and like part of the reason like it's not mm. that I'm like it's not that other people are lazy or like not determined like again I, I grew up middle class like I have access to education and like, for the times I was unemployed, like, I had, um, like, supportive parents, like, I can read, and even, like, the fact that I can take myself to the bathroom has probably helped in, like, securing, like, gangful employment. I just, like, I, I kind of hate the way society makes it sound, like, if you are having problems, it's obviously because you are lazy, well, yeah, this notion that like if the myth is of overcoming the barriers and that's the hero journey, yeah. why aren't we asking why are the barriers there? Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah, this is a bad society if it's putting yes. barriers in front of people. Yes. Well, that I think is a very good note to end on. Yes. Yes. <laughs> society sucks. God is dead. Yes, yeah, society sucks. God is dead. Like, <laughs> gratitude is weaponized. <laughs> yeah. Burn it all down. Desiree, yeah. where, can people, where can people find you online? Oh, my Instagram is Desiree.Lisa.Walsh. And then I think there's an underscore. Um, 
And then my Facebook is just Desiree Walsh. Great. Um, and you can add me, um, and add me to Instagram because I'm trying to get Instagram famous, even though I'm not sure what that means. But I am told it's something I want. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Just take it. You want it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a consumer culture. Take it. Get yeah. it. <laughs> Well, Desiree, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, you're welcome. No problem. This was like the moment that we got to know each other and people get to listen to it. Yeah. (laughs) I hope there's more conversations to come. Me too. Okay, bye. Bye. podcast is produced by me, Becky Johnson, from Parkdale in Toronto. Artwork this week by Becca Zwick, and our theme music is always by Laura Barrett. For information on all our artists and guests, please follow us everywhere at The H Word Pod, or sign up for our newsletter at thehwordpod.com. Hold up. 